Hi, folks. Welcome to the Man Overseas Podcast. My guest today is Christian Mojaiso. Coach Christian, like myself, is in the personal coaching business. He helps his clients to deal with something that is prevalent nowadays, and that is stress. You may recall from my intro in the Josh Lusky podcast that I cited a Gallup poll that was conducted in America relating to people's stress levels. So in 2018, Americans reported stress levels that rivaled that of Greece, which had led the world on that survey every year since 2012. So that's not good because Greeks, as you may know, have gone through austerity measures. They have because of staggering debt that they've just incurred over the years and they had a massive default on that debt. So Greece has a lot of reason to be stressed, I guess, whereas perhaps Americans shouldn't be struggling so much. But my guest is going to help with that. He's a very bright guy. He was on a university chess team before he went to while he was in high school, he was on a university chess team. So that's impressive. And he was accepted to one of the more prestigious universities for engineering in the United States. He is African. And as some of you know, I have taken a keen interest in Africa for several years. I've actually written two articles on the blog about my experiences in Africa. And I would love to get back there. So today we're going to talk about, about stress. We'll talk about Africa. We'll talk about the company that helps that he founded that helps people effectively manage their stress and some other interesting stuff. So if you have any interest in a coming to America story or you want to hear from someone who helps people with stress management, that's where we're going to go with this conversation. So here we go. Let me welcome Christian Mojaiso to the show. Christian, welcome to the Man Overseas Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here, Brad. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for a couple, it's been at least two weeks, right? Yeah, for a couple of weeks. Great. <laughs> yep. I'm sure you're well prepared. I'm, I'm excited too, man. By the way, I've been in search of the perfect podcast voice, and you are now competing with Ted Agon, who was my guest a few months ago, for the best uh-huh. podcast voice on Man Overseas. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that, man. <laughs> yeah, and I love talking to people who are smarter than me, because didn't you go to school in four different countries? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I did a, a bit of school in uh, Uganda, then Kenya, then yeah, South Africa, then the U.S., yeah. Wow. And so where are you now? Right now I'm in uh, the southeast of the Democratic Republic of Congo, right? So as you know, there's two Congos. Uh, so I'm in the big one, the important one. Ah, okay. <laughs> is that the one that um, Dikembe Mutombo is from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, wow. yeah. Very cool. Right. He works big out at my gym in Houston. I see him all the time. He's a little Ah, tall. yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> Every time yeah, I yeah, see that, him, go uh, ahead. No, no, I was saying that, uh, yeah, it's, he, he, that, that's the country where he's from. Yeah. Uh, usually when sports people like to talk about uh, the, the, the sportsman from Congo that they know, right, Dikembe. Yeah, every time I see him, I think about that time that Jordan dunked on him and then gave him the finger wag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> posterized Dikembe Mutombo. But if you're going to get posterized, Jordan is, the you know, <laughs> that's not a bad uh, person to have posterize you. What does posterize mean? I'm, I'm not sure. Well, that's when you're standing under the basket and you try uh-huh. to jump and block a dunker shot, but the, the offensive player dunks on you, basically. And, oh, I see. Uh, yeah, the ball maybe lands on your head. The ball lands on your head and you are then posterized because somebody took a picture and then kids put that poster on their wall. So that's where posterized comes from. Oh, I see. I see. All right. So... I mean, if it's Michael Jordan, it's okay. But if it's some other 
some other basketballer or maybe like some other lesser guy it's kind of someone might feel humiliated right to be dunked <laughs> on like that that's exactly right yes ah, okay i understand <laughs> let's talk about your home continent africa so i do wish every american had an opportunity to visit africa because it's a special place more so than any other place that i have traveled to africa really reinforced for me the fact that we're largely a product of our environment and um, i'm curious what age at what age did you go to america i went to america when i was uh, so that was i was around eight, 19 years old mm-hmm. yeah so that was uh what was it 20, 2013 yeah but yeah i was 19 years old at the time yeah that, that's what that's when i went there after having studied at a prestige school in south africa very intense school i then moved to the to the united states for college and was it what you expected no there's a huge difference between uh how you think something is going to be what it actually is mm-hmm. so i had watched a lot of american movies read a lot of books by americans um yeah, I thought I was prepared. Watched Everybody Hates Chris. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I thought I was not prepared for the U.S., right? Uh, but uh, no, when I arrived, it was obviously not the way I imagined it. Would be. It was one thing to think about it beforehand. It was another thing to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the culture was just different to what I was used to. Uh, the jokes were different. Many times, like, people would make jokes and I didn't understand them, despite the fact that I spoke the language and I'd also make jokes which are very funny in Africa, but when you make them in the US, it's a big effect. Uh, <laughs> example would be, I mean, there's like, so in Africa, it's very common, at least when I was in high school and primary school, right? Like spanking, you'd get canes, we just call it caning. Spanking has like a more naughty connotation, so caning, right? So. <laughs> They, they would, uh, you'd get caned if you did, like, I don't know, something that the, the school authorities didn't like. You didn't go to class on time, you might get a cane for that, a beating for that. Uh, usually it was on the, on the behinds, right? So, I mean, not like a punch, but uh, you lie down flat on the ground or you bend over like some desk and then you get like a beating on the, on the, on the ass. That's, that's kind of how it was. So anyways, there was a lot of funny stuff, uh, funny stories I had to share about that. Uh, which were like very funny when I was in Africa, but when I tried to make them in the U.S., guys were just cringing. For them, it was like child abuse. So these <laughs> these were some of the things I had to uh, adapt to. It took me about maybe two years, and I knew that I had, I had begun to grasp the culture when I was able to understand most of the jokes and let's say understand Chris Rock's bit before I could, but now like I could totally understand them. And that was when I think for me that's one of the indicators I used to see whether I understand the cultures if I can understand like the insider kind of jokes. But it took it took time and three to four years around. Interesting. What was it like being a min- a minority for the first time? Yeah, that was heavy because okay. So again, I was like in this particular case, it was one of the first times I'd ever been a black person and in the minority, a black person in in the minority. Usually in Africa, the majority of the population is black. Mm-hmm. I'd gone to a Pan-African, African institution, Pan-African institution in South Africa with students from all over the African continent. There were Arab students, but still the population was predominantly black. Mm-hmm. So this was the first time for me to be in a population where I am in the minority. And for a while there, I struggled. So 
I mean, before going to the United States, uh, I'd always been taught all people are equal. Uh, we are all equal to each other. White people are not better than us. They're not, we're not better than them. We're not worse than that stuff. But those are just uh, theories. There's a difference between theory and uh, reality. Mm-hmm. So these were just theories to me, right? But my own experience was different because, I mean, I was really uh, obsessed with math, still am. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, there's this one book, calculus book I used to read because I wanted to become a mathematician. So there's a calculus book I used to read. And uh, the book had many chapters. At the start of every chapter, they put like, the picture of a successful, uh, like a great mathematician, Leonard Euler, they'll put Srinivasa Ramanujan, they put all sorts of people. Now, as a kid, I, I, I worshipped this book, and I worshipped these mathematicians. All of them were white, there was only like one Indian in that thing. So my own perception was that white pe- all white people, first of all, must be very smart, and black people are not that smart, because otherwise there should be some in the book. Like, so this was my perception. So I always, I mean, I didn't know it, but I had an inferiority complex. I felt that white people were better than me. Mm. But, right, and they were all smart, and I was kind of foolish, so I had, to, I had to prove that black people can be intelligent, right? So this was kind of the, no one really taught me this stuff. It's just the mentality I somehow assimilated. Mm. So when, when, I went to the, when I went to the U.S. and I was, it was the first time I was, I interacted with so many white people, right? And I realized, I was able to realize on a practical level that there is very smart white people, not from a book or some theory, but I was able to realize that there's very smart white people in the sense of being a very like sharp intellect, right? very intellectual white people. That one I had already known from before. I also was able to realize that there's average, I mean, average intellect in terms of academics, there were white people in that area. And then the white people at the very bottom making very dumb decisions. So this was the first time I ever was able to, to see this. And also it was the first time because, I mean, I spent time uh, living in, uh, like, let's say, white people's houses as uh, their host. They were my host family. So I got to see them and realize, look, uh, these, are just, uh, these are just people. But one of the effects for the very beginning is that I felt that I had to prove that black people... <laughs> was smart so which meant that now i was putting tremendous pressure on myself whenever i failed the test i felt like i'd failed black people everywhere Mm. and whenever i succeeded i felt like oh wait black people have now triumphed no one told me to do this this was a very dumb expectation but this is the expectation i had this is what i thought and so this really of course affected my academics badly so when I do badly, I didn't even want to go to class because, I mean, I thought the professor would, again, confirm why black people do not belong to such an institution. Nobody ever said that. I somehow felt that I don't belong in such a prestigious institution. This is where they bring smart kids. And uh, compared to the other kids, I'm very dumb. I, I don't really belong here. They must have made a mistake to admit me. And sooner or later, they're going to find out. And so... <laughs> This was all my thought process. This was one of my deepest experiences with, with how one can create misery for oneself. It took a while to untangle from all of this stuff. There's a book by Theodore Dalrymple that compares the white underclass of England with the black underclass of America and the similarities in their cultures. And it was really eye-opening for me. 
one of the things that I find fascinating is that more people have come to America from Africa seeking freedom and opportunity than came during the transatlantic slave trade. America is also the only country to ever fight a war within itself to end slavery. Many people like to say that slavery is America's original sin, but what they neglect to mention is that slavery is the history of the world. There's been no race, color, or creed that's been exempt from slavery, and it still goes on today. I mean, had America not had slavery, it would have been an exception. But that's, a, that's mm. an interesting discussion on race and getting your opinion on black culture and not being a victim. I experienced um, the lack of victim mentality when I visited South Africa. I, I toured a township, and I remember the tour guide telling us not to give anyone money and... The reason was because they did not want to create a culture of dependency. Don't give them any rand because everyone who comes through here next, they'll be begging for money and they wanted people to make it on their own. And I thought that that was a beautiful thing. That, that's right. Uh, when you talk about the, the culture of, uh, of, of dependency, yes, it's not always the case that uh, the best idea is to help somebody. But sometimes it's best to let people uh, fend for themselves. But of course, at some other times, like uh, my mom works for the World Food Program here in Congo. So there's like, she uh, she goes out and uh, according to, so the idea is to feed people who are hungry. So people who, from what I send food, they probably like die of starvation. So it's, it's, it's a whole tricky matter of when to help, how much to help. It is tricky and it's a balance. I mean, sometimes it's better to volunteer money rather than time because money can do more good. But then if you're giving your money to a corrupt association, then it's better to devote your time to people in need. It's a very, it's a very precarious balance there. And, and I, you know, I've still haven't reconciled myself to the idea that money goes further. It's just, it's so much easier to write a check than it is to spend a couple of weeks in Zambia volunteering. I'm always torn on that. Um, did you expect America to be racist? Had you heard that it was a very racist country? Before, I don't think I thought so much about racism. The only thing I learned about racism was like from books I'd read when I was in Kenya, uh, but back when I was a kid, I'd read books about racism, like Frederick Douglass, uh, mm -hmm. the, the free slave and the book he'd written. Yeah, but I mean, I thought like a lot of those things that uh, were, were, like, were just in the past. And I mean, frankly, when I went to the U.S., I did experience a few incidents. Um, but uh, no, it was, not, uh, it was not really a big deal, at least for me. I didn't experience uh, racism when I was there. I didn't experience much. There was just like one incident that I could clearly point out as a racist incident. What happened? So, <laughs> dude, you're going to expose my... Okay, this is good. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> me, and my <laughs> me and one of my buddies unfortunately passed away, but uh, one buddy and another buddy, they gave me a Facebook message uh, inviting me to come over to their dorm room. So I go there. This was when I was in college. And then it turns out that they're trying acid, right? So I never tried acid before, right? So uh, they... <laughs> this is wrong, okay. <laughs> anyway, so they get like... Uh, they cut pieces of paper, like very small pieces of paper, like into a square or something. You, you wouldn't imagine that such a thing would have an effect on you, but apparently the acid was in that form, sort of square kind of form. So they cut it into three pieces. I, I, I took one piece and my buddies took the others. I, at least I remember taking one and then they took the other. And I'm thinking this would probably not really have an effect on me. And then we went totally, you know, after a while, just 
perception just began to change, you know, and like, okay, maybe some stuff, you know. <laughs> so basically now we get totally high on acid. And then, I mean, so high that one of my buddies pulls out his dick. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> it's very hairy dick too. So me and the other guy, but we're like, look, even if we are high, you know, we have like some moral boundaries, right? Like, mm-hmm. Put that thing back in. So, <laughs> so we get him <laughs> to put it back in, right? And then, so this proceeds for a while. We, we have like a great time. And then at some point in the evening, one of the guys I was with very high on acid, right? Basically began to refer to me as like a monkey, right? So uh, referring to me as a monkey, uh, ape, uh, things like that. This was like uh, someone I had known for a long time. I didn't, I, I never expected him to talk to me in this way, but when he was high, that, that's what he was talking about. I mean, I, I didn't like hold it against him. Later, he was worried, you know, because again, the political environment on university campuses, if I was to release his name, that would really be bad for him. So naturally, I told him, look, I, I understand you are high, but I'm not, I'm not getting offended by this stuff. I certainly do not want to ruin your career over something that happens when you're high. I just told him next time, just with these kinds of things, be careful who you who you tell them to. But you might tell them to someone who will just broadcast them and uh, tell everybody and give them your identity. So this is what happened. Yeah, but this was like the racist experience. That was a very, that was the first, that was a blatantly racist experience. But I mean, I spent like four to five, four, I actually spent five years in college. There were very few events. So mostly people treated me well. So I can't like complain that I was, in fact, I was helped a lot uh, by all sorts of people, including uh, people with uh, white skin, Latinos, white people, black people. I was helped by many people. So I can't like get that one incident and now paint an entire race or an entire country. Yeah, but uh, I didn't experience much discrimination, mostly support, actually. Dude, that was a great story. And let me tell you something that may lead you to believe that your experience was not racist. I Mm. may or may not have tried acid. So I used to get these really ferocious headaches and had Mm. tried everything. And it turned out I had a condition called supertrochlear neuralgia which is just extreme Mm. facial pain. It's a fancy name for severe pain in the head. So anyway, it was suggested to me that I try acid. And I'm not going to say I did it. But if I had, my only recollection of it would be that everyone looked like either a transvestite or a monkey. And I I shit you not. there's this ongoing joke about dropping acid and seeing trannies and monkeys everywhere. I don't know if tranny is, is um, an appropriate term nowadays. I don't think you can use it, but yes, either a cross dresser or a monkey, a monkey facial feature. And, and it just, you know, we share DNA with chimpanzees and if there's a link there and acid helps you to see the link better, if that's, if if that's true, it's the most real experience that you could have. I, I don't even know if I'm making any sense in saying this. And if you've never quote unquote tripped before, none of this is going to make any sense. It has definitely been experienced that people see monkeys, see humans as monkeys when they trip on acid. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily write that off as racist because the people that I may or may not have seen were not black. Well, I don't know. That's because, I mean, I, I didn't want to, my whole idea is that I didn't want to 
because I mean, it's like we've known each other for a long time. I didn't want to ruin his future because I mean, in the states, at those at those colleges, the environment is so political. You know, it's like is the urge to get offended very quickly. So I mean, I for me, I just didn't ruin everything for him. Tag put on this guy for the rest of his life because I'd known him for quite some time. Uh, yeah, especially of the stuff that happened when he was under the influence of, uh, while we were under the influence. <laughs> well, yeah. that's a great point. We have a call-out culture where you're a hero for calling out someone for being racist. But if anyone, <laughs> dude, I can't believe we're talking about this because people sometimes appear as monkeys when when people are on acid. It's a it's a crazy thing. But you're right. That would have gotten him fired. You can't. You can't even talk about race nowadays. You know, when people say that they want to have an honest conversation about race, they don't mean that they want an honest conversation about race. What we're doing today is having an honest conversation about race, primarily because I don't care about the fallout. But yeah, I, I love talking about race. Like I ask my black friends sometimes, like, can you think of a country that's less racist than America? And they sort of fumble all over themselves. You know, having traveled the world, I've been to almost 60 countries now. I can tell you that there may not be a less racist nation in the history of the world, but that's, that's my opinion. And of course I haven't experienced racism myself, but I have a lot of black friends who have. And um, I just think that America is the place where you can thrive regardless of the color of your skin. And if it wasn't for our politics, uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even hear about racism. You, you could spend a lot of time in America before you ran into racism. And even if you did, you, you, unless you're a mind reader, you couldn't be sure that it was a, a racial, racially motivated. I'm very uh, hesitant about uh, things like this because I don't understand them well enough, you know. So, I mean, like part of what I do is I, have, I, I, I work with what I call the observe approach. So I prefer to work with things that I've seen for myself, you see. So usually the media is feeding me things that I have never seen and they're being given to me with a certain spin. Um, and then there's uh, historical records, which, I mean, I, I don't know. I've never seen the stuff that's in the historical records. I don't even understand, let's say, racism well enough to know whether an event is, uh, uh, whether an event is uh, racist or not. Or like, let's say the racial, uh, what, uh, it's, it's just, look, I, I have too much ignorance when it comes to especially political, politically related stuff. So what, uh, what I prefer to do is to take people on a case-by-case -case basis. I found great friends uh, I found great friends in all the racial groups. That's a wonderful approach, my man. I like that a lot. I think you're right. We all have limited information, but it is interesting to get others' perspectives because I do think that racism is on life support in America, and we have politicians who are, who are keeping it alive, unfortunately. Um, but that's not to say racism doesn't exist. It will always exist. Sexism will always exist. But we tend to make it, or our politicians and our media tend to make it out of bigger, to be a bigger thing than it is, unfortunately. I was going to say earlier that I speak five languages. How many do you speak? French, Spanish, English, Swahili, Lingala, six. <laughs> ah, you, are you trying to one-up me? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I was only kidding. Yeah. As an American, I speak a grand total of one language. <laughs> well, one and a quarter because my Spanish <laughs> needs some tightening up. But yeah, man, I try to explain to people here. I'm in Europe now. Uh, 
people tend to speak four and five languages here. And I tell them that where I live in America, it takes three hours by plane to get outside of America if you're going east or west. So it's about a three-hour flight to New York, three-hour flight to San Francisco. So even to get to another language besides Spanish, you have to fly across one of the, the big oceans. So yeah, there just hasn't been a whole lot of reason to learn other languages. I asked my friend, I have a friend Boni in Zambia, how many languages he speaks. And um, so I asked him how many languages he speaks. And he said four. And those were Bimba, Tonga, Soli, Nyanja, and of course, English. Have you heard of any of those languages? Hmm. No. Yeah. So there's yeah, 70. Nyanja, I've heard of Nyanja, I've heard of Bimba as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. So there are 72 different languages in Zambia. And Zambia is only about the size of Texas. So that is just crazy to me. I think there's something like 2,000 languages in Africa. So hmm. I, want, know, I don't know the exact number, but we have many. That's right. That's crazy. Let's talk about your company, Observe. So what, was the, what served as the catalyst hmm. for starting your company? I've had many, many catalysts uh, in my life. Uh, so basically, the whole idea of Observe, right? The company is to help extremely stressed people deal with their stress. So I'm in the business of uh, human suffering and helping to end uh, human suffering. Uh, at, at the moment, I don't know how to end it. So now I'm talking about reducing human suffering. What caused me to start this company was the fact that I don't want to suffer. And, uh, <laughs> and I, do, I also don't like others to suffer. Um, and there were many events that just put my suffering to a point where I needed to find a solution. So there's one I usually talk about, which is uh, of me as a student uh, in the US. Uh, but uh, I mean, I, I, I'm going to talk about a different one, you know, just uh, change things, things up a little bit. There was another. Well, there was before, also, you, before you do that, you went to the top engineering or one of the top engineering schools in the United States, right? That's right. So that was, uh, I went to Harvey Mudd College. Harvey Mudd College is a university in Claremont, California. It's like one of those schools, like imagine you go all over the planet and you pick like very sharp, the sharpest you can find, right? Like very brilliant students in math and science and bring them to one location. So that's Harvey Mudd. That's where I went. So I interacted with very smart students. Like um, my college roommate, my first year at Harvey Mudd was like the sharpest guy in terms of just intellect the sharpest guy i'd ever met mm. right? um yeah tasks that would i mean math, mathematical problems a problem that would take me a long time to do were just obvious to him right he didn't seem to struggle much with anything but of course that was just i'm using seem because I, I i'd never really looked deeply at his life so yeah um yeah it was that it was actually so kind of i like, think mit it's like mit type school mm. in fact i would say there's no yeah so am I just the whole geeky, hyper-science uh, mentality, that, that that was the place. Mm -hmm. And you got a degree in math? Yep. All right. I went there and I, yeah, I, I actually, you know, I went to Harvey Mudd, but I got kicked out after a year and a half. All right. So the technical term is uh, it, you are declared ineligible to register, <laughs> right? Which uh, is just, look, you don't belong here, dude. Get out of here. Right? <laughs> So after a year and a half gone from Harvey Mudd, mm. and then I transferred to a school that was just a walking distance, like what, two minutes away from Harvey Mudd, which was Pitzer College. 
Mm. And that score was an exact contrast, right? Whereas Harvey Mudd was strict, putting like tremendous, uh, making you... My first year at Harvey Mudd, I took a class called Special Relativity, which is like physics, right? Mm. Usually you start with mechanics, but here we start with like Special Relativity. I think my first semester I was taking maybe eight or nine math or science classes, right? So wow. hardcore. Whereas the average, I think, with the, the other schools that I checked out, you take about four classes a semester. Here I was taking about maybe eight or nine classes. And all of them hardcore, like math and science, chemistry, biology, mathematics, physics, that kind of thing. Yeah, just so you, uh, so, yeah. keep going. So you you have all this intellect and talent deposited into one school and everybody's a superstar. Did that feel make you feel inadequate? Very much so. It made me feel uh, inadequate. I felt inferior to all these students. They know me do. I mean, they're getting things easily and I'm not. I'm struggling and they're not. Of course, funny enough, my buddies... Uh, my buddies in university thought I was really smart. But I, I was thinking they must be mistaken. Mm. They must, they're seeing something that's not there. Surely if they find out how mediocre I am, they'll realize they made a mistake about me. Mm. It's obviously, uh, right, I try to really hide, hide my shortcomings, my mistakes, my failures. I try to hide all those things from them and try to maintain this perfect image they had of me as the as the smart guy obviously this just took its toll on me man like i mean my grades began to go down i mean at some point i just uh, began to wonder why the heck am i living this life uh, this life is a hell is what i was thinking this this life is just i'm I'm failing totally uh my academics down i'm failing academically i'm not really getting along with uh not like we're fighting, but I don't really have any friends. I mean, I'm just, I'm staying in my room all day because I don't want to come out and just uh, depressed. I'm also eating a lot and not doing exercise. So I'm just growing fat. I just, and then at some point, uh, actually the deans of the school uh, came to my dorm room to see me, right? So which only mounted the pressure, right? They came to see me because I'd been cutting classes tremendously. I didn't want to go to class. I didn't want the teacher to see just how mediocre and stupid I am. So and all, all this stuff just, uh, and obviously there was my genius roommate, right, who seemed to have the answer to every question. Maybe I, it wasn't really his fault. Uh, he was just being himself. He was uh, shining, and, uh, expressing his cap- capabilities. He actually wasn't a proud guy. He isn't, as far as I know. Um, very, very doesn't like tell you how much he knows if you ask him a question he'll answer so great roommate it was just being in his presence made me feel very dim very stupid very incapable but i don't think he actually thought of me that way because whenever i would play chess games he'd be right next to me very excited and interested in seeing how i was playing i i had a i i had an image of how i thought that he saw me but i very unlikely that my image of what i thought he saw was what he saw because his entire action seemed to show that he admired me he, there were qualities in me that uh, that he liked he liked the fact that i was very good at chess things like that but anyways all of this just piled up on me and basically culminated in me going to google trying to figure out the most efficient ways to end things. And the solution for me was to jump off of the top building, one of the buildings at, at Harvey Mudd. So I just, uh, I'd go to the top and fantasize about jumping. 
But then something was also stopping me, which was fear. There was the possibility that I may jump and not die. I thought there might be a slim chance that I don't die and maybe break every bone and make things worse. Uh, this was one of the, this was like one of the lowest points of my life. And like I told you, I transferred to a school right next to it called Pitzer College. From Pitzer College, sometimes you could take classes at Harvey Mudd. Whenever I'd walk back to that campus, all the emotions would come back. It's like, imagine an environment where you experience a traumatic event, right? That environment is going to trigger trauma within you. It's gonna bring it back. Every time I'd go just step onto the Harvey Mudd campus, all the emotions would come back, all the shame, all the fear, all the feeling of inadequacy, all, all of that stuff. So this was one of the points, at the time, not so good. Later, I see it's one of the triggers that led me to really look at my own suffering and try to understand where it comes from. Because I realized that Harvey Mudd, my roommate, all these people, they never did anything to me. They were very, in fact, the school was very supportive. They gave me many chances. They gave me a great support structure. I brought this upon myself. Uh, it was I was stressing myself out because I didn't know how to handle my own thoughts and emotions. So basically, <laughs> it's it's bizarre to say, but the environment didn't do this to me. One of my realizations in the future, and one of the key things I do with observe the company is first of all to realize that uh, all suffering, all stress is self-inflicted. It comes from not having control over my own thoughts. So thoughts run wild, feelings of inferiority. Then these emotions in the body don't know what to do with them because there were students in the same situation as me who were not, uh, let's say, feeling the way I was feeling. They were having their own experience because their own internal uh, process was different. I, I don't know if this makes sense or not. Yeah, I'm curious. So the anger and the sadness and feelings of inadequacy, feeling stupid, your grades slipping, um, staying in bed all day, all of those feelings, did those lead you to figure out a way to observe those emotional states? Yeah, so basically, before, I was always, I always thought, as we've always been taught, that the environment is what uh, causing my stress. So mm. the reason I was stressed was because I was at this institution that was putting me under a lot of pressure. The reason I'm angry is because you annoyed me. But one of the shifts I learned was that, uh, no, actually, I saw the event, I made some interpretation of the event, and then I generated my own misery. So obviously, I don't want to be miserable. That was one of the realizations. I don't want to be miserable. I don't want to be stressed. I'm not stressing myself out deliberately. The only reason I'm stressing myself out is because I don't know how to manage my thoughts and emotions. I don't know how to handle my own memory and imagination. Because basically that's where suffering is coming from. Imagination of a horrible future, imagination of a fearful future creates fear. Uh, memory of events that were embarrassing creates pain now it's just i don't know how to handle my memory i don't know how to handle my imagination so well question was okay how do i become better how do i become better at handling my imagination my memory my thoughts my emotions right and that that's the the, the answer to that is really the the beginning of observe because the answer is 
It doesn't matter what the thing is. If you observe it, you become better at handling it. If I observe the workings of my own thoughts and emotions, if I observe my memory and imagination and just let it play out, every such observation makes me better at managing my own thoughts and emotions, which makes me have more control over my own internal state so that I could be in an event that previously would annoy me and I'm not angry. I could be in an event that I considered stressful, but I'm not stressed. And uh, I developed a tool for this. Literally, whenever something would create intense emotion in me, let's say you say something that pisses me off, I just sit down with my back straight, close my eyes, back straight to be alert, eyes closed to shut out distractions, and let whatever emotion and thought is happening, let it happen. Just let the thoughts run, let the emotions run. And one of the things I realized was that, first of all, after sitting there for a while, the intense emotion would subside to where I was able to think clearly again. That was the first thing. I didn't have to be a slave to these thoughts and emotions anymore. The second thing was that I began to learn all sorts of things about how my thoughts and emotions work. I was able to predict events that might trigger such a state. I was able to catch anger before it happens. An event, I realized weird things like, it, you know, it actually takes time to get angry. You'd think that anger is instant, but it's a process. It takes time. If you're really perceptive, you can notice the moment before the anger arises. You could go into the space between the stimulus and the anger. There's a space there. And this is true for sadness or um, any of the other negative emotional states that we get into. Uh, even, uh, even the ones we consider positive, excitement, it also takes some time to get excited. It's not instant. Something you said there that I want to touch on is the idea of how your environment does influence emotional states. I may be mm. coming at it from a different angle here, but there's a small town where I'm from, and it was very popular there to say, she makes me feel so guilty. And I didn't realize until I had, been, I had moved away and I was in a bigger city for almost 10 years, and I realized that I had never heard those words outside of the people that I stayed in contact with in the small town that I used to live with and or, or live in i recognized right away when someone was trying to make someone else feel a certain way and and so when i recognize it i acknowledge it and and i'll say like someone is willing to do that to to try to inflict emotional distress on someone else is an asshole and part of living a good life is surrounding yourself with good people Good people don't try to make others feel a certain way. And so if there's, there's somebody in your life who is trying to make you feel guilty or trying to make you feel a certain way, and that's not a positive way, well, that's someone who you need to slowly eliminate from your life. So you can start by reducing the amount of time that you spend with them, but then eventually cut them loose. <laughs> it's not worth the emotional toll that those people are trying to inflict on you to maintain a relationship with them. Oh, you're trying to make me feel a certain way? Well, guess what? You're out of here. <laughs> like, that's it. Like, I, I, don't, I don't do that. People, I don't, 
I don't allow people in my life that try to make me feel a certain way. I cut it off, like right, right then and there. Like, oh, sorry, I see you trying to make me feel this way. I don't, I don't play that game. Like, go, go do it with somebody else. Do you have, what do you think about that? What I would say is how to do, what to do with difficult people or people who are, you know, angry people, people who say, in, say things that you consider to be insulting. How to deal with them is going to depend on one prescription for it. So it may, in fact, be true that in some instances, it's in your best interest to just end the relationship. In other times, maybe that's uh, not possible, but there's many ways to handle it. The first thing to realize is that when we see, I, I do not, uh, I don't really divide the world into good and bad people because I realize that all the people I think are good are the people who are the way I want them to be. The people I consider to be bad are people who are not the way I want them to be. Whereas the same people who I think are good today, if they do something I don't want, want in an instant, they become bad. This is something I'm imposing onto the world, I realized. It's just my unwillingness to accept people the way they are. One thing I learned was, this is also another possibility, is that sometimes when it comes with people, like I, I have a cousin who was just so hard. She just terrible, not thinking correctly, always doing dumb stuff. You tell her one thing today and then tomorrow she's going to repeat it and the next day she's going to repeat it. And then if you like try to basic organizational skills, she doesn't have them. You want, let's say, her to bring the food, let's say, put the meal on the table like at eight. No, she's going to bring it at 10. Like, so I just thought she was like horrible, you know. Right now we have a great relationship. We have no problems at all. We're always smiling, laughing together. And all that changes, I realized the reason I think she's difficult or problematic is because she's not the way I want her to be. I would rather she be organized. But the fact is, she's not organized. I'd rather that I don't have to repeat to her. I would rather that she behave the way I want her to behave. But that's not how she behaves. When I decided to just accept her the way she is, nature has made many kinds of people. Some people are going to be the way I want them to be. Others are not going to be the way I want them to be. Once I stop trying to make people the way I want them to be, most of the time, what I've noticed is that just the relationship is fixed almost. It seems like, like magic. People somehow seem to be able to sense that you're not trying to make them into something. You're not trying to fit them into a box. You're not trying to alter their behavior. You're just accepting them the way they are. So this is also another option that is different from when it comes to the observe approach or my observe, the way I see things is I don't really tell people what to do. I don't tell them, hey, if you have like a difficult relationship with someone, accept them. Or if you have a difficult relation with someone, get rid of them. No. What I've learned is that you just look at the relationship or look at the person and just the observation of the person will reveal to you what the best course of action is. It's an interesting take. And I think I would disagree with it. I, I tend to believe that life is too short to wait on someone who is inconsiderate, for example. So if they tell you that they're going to meet you for dinner at eight and they don't show up until 10 and they're unapologetic, for example, once they do that twice, you, you're wasting your precious life if you've then spent four hours waiting on them for dinner when they told you that they would be there at eight and they show up at 10. So for me, it's a matter of, are you considerate of other people the way that I am? Because I want to attract people in my life 
who value other people's time the same way that I do. And I think that you attract what you become in terms of people in your life. So if you're a good-hearted person, you're charitable, you're considerate of other people's time, you're going to attract other people like that because they're going to recognize, you're going to recognize it in each other. And then there's this spectral connection where you, you hit it off. And a lot of times you don't realize, why, do, why did I just hit it off with this person? I, I enjoy talking to them. That's one. But I think it's deeper than that. They showed up when they said they were going to show up. When they were going to be late, they sent me a text and said, hey, I'm going to be 10 minutes late. I'm really sorry. You know, that kind of thing. And then you think, oh, well, I would do that same thing that they're doing. And, and so you, you tend to gravitate towards those type of people. And, and the last podcast that I had with uh, Matt Ori, we talked about as you get older, your values tend to solidify. And as a result, your friends group gets smaller and smaller. And it's just a function of people... Uh, maybe being a little more rigid in their ways, but, but just figuring out what they want out of life and realizing too that as time expires, you know, we're running out of time. And so you just want to make sure that you maximize it and spend it with those worthy of your time. So I, I think that we have a little difference of opinion on that, but that's good. That's, that's valuable to listeners because they can choose which, which approach to go in. But I think that, um, I think that your approach is valuable too, because sometimes you can't get rid of people. I mean, if you have a, a boss that is not considerate of you and orders you around instead of asking you to do things and just, you know, is playing too much of a hierarchical game to where you can't have a solid relationship, um, sometimes you can't quit that job right away. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be something that you're going to have to deal with and learn to manage. And that's where a lot of uh, what you're talking about could come in, in terms of uh, managing your daily stress and anxiety. Do you think there's a difference between stress and anxiety? All right, uh, j- just a minute. I'm, I'm going to go to the, go, go to that uh, to that part. Difference between stress and anxiety. So I'm really not saying that the best way is to just accept them as they are. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that in your situation, you may find that the best course of action is to just get rid of them, which seems to be, from what I'm hearing, is the solution you tend to apply a lot. Mm-hmm. This guy doesn't fit, right? This guy doesn't fit. I want, I want someone to behave in such and such a way. I want to interact with people who show up on time. Or if they don't show up on time, they tell me why they didn't show up on time. These are my standards. And people who meet those standards, I let in because my life is too short and I don't want to spend my time with, with those other kinds of people. Right. So I can't tell you don't do this, right? Because if it works for you, right? I mean, <laughs> what sense does it make to tell someone to stop something that's working? There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not even saying it's good. It's, it's just if it works for you, then, then that's what you do. So every, everything has a, I mean, every decision we make, right, has a consequence. If I surround myself with people who, are the way I want them to be, people who I like, people who agree with me on a value level, that's obviously a pleasant experience. The other consequence of this is that it also, in a sense, it, it, the greatest learning happens from the biggest challenges. If I have a problem that's of difficulty five, I learn more from that problem than a problem of difficulty one. People who are not the way I want them to be are the people that, if I allow them, will teach me the greatest things. The people who agree with me, I will also learn from them. 
the learning will not be as this is just uh, the observation right the learning will not be as intense or as quick as the learning i get from people who don't fit into my structure at all now am i saying that hey let's accept people now let's uh, let's just stay with people who don't agree with us at all i'm i'm not saying that either it's just your own situation and what you want out of life determines how you go along this path but there is a way in which surrounding yourself with people who are the, who are like you limits you that's a good point i love what you said there i think that uh, something i've talked about quite a bit is this idea of anti role models which are people who demonstrate by their example how not to be and that can be very valuable and i think that as you age you collect more and more of those experiences and then probably once you have more flexibility and optionality in your life then you can be a little more selective in who you want you know you've increased your options by either making yourself valuable to the marketplace or a valuable commodity on the market in terms of uh, you know the sexual or selection um, marketplace sexual selection so I think when you strip everything away at its core, anxiety is just a refusal to deal with uncertainty. And sometimes I worry about the language that we use in our modern times. So for example, when somebody says that they have anxiety, do they really, or is it just they get nervous sometimes, like most everyone does? You know, we're just so prone to exaggeration. It's not to dismiss, I, I realize too, that's not to dismiss that people have mental health issues, but I am anti-self-diagnosis. I used to work for a guy who almost every day would say, I am starving, or which you know, living in Africa, there are people that are starving. This dude lives in America. He's a millionaire. He's not starving. Um, or about once a month when he had to work a full day, God forbid, he would say, oh, I'm just, I'm dying. Oh, I'm, I'm under, I'm swamped. Uh, what did he say? Swamped up to my ears and alligators or something like that. This dude was 40 years old. So mm -hmm. it's not just young people that are prone to hyperbole. But what's more overused than OMG? Did that get to Africa, the, the OMG um, acronym? Mm -hmm. Oh, I my know, God. I think I may have heard it in Africa. Also. I don't know if, yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, I don't know. Maybe I heard it more in California. It's taken the place of holy shit, right? It's, but it's been reduced to almost nothing. It means almost nothing because somebody today could reply to a humorous text and say, I'm literally dying and look up and not even be smiling, <laughs> right? Uh, or we keep adding HAs to something that's mm. funny when you're texting with somebody. You reply only haha, -ha, the other person is likely to think you're rude or that you didn't think it was funny. <laughs> so we just keep going with the ha-has. Um, or something is the cutest, or this is the funniest thing I have ever seen. Uh, come on, really? I mean, the funniest thing ever? Right. <laughs> so, but you know, language is culture. This is the funniest thing I've ever seen. You know, like, how did you make that determination? <laughs> right. right, yeah. Uh, That's some serious observing huh? right. and note-taking. Maybe one, are you certain <laughs> that there is nothing funnier <laughs> that you've ever seen, you know? But yeah, how anxiety-ridden people can be is insane nowadays. I mean, how many people thought Trump is literally Hitler? And now that they've bought into that line of thinking, everything Trump does mm. is rationalized to fit that initial belief that Trump is Hitler. Another thing I think about is, is like oftentimes, 
those who get incredibly nervous don't realize that other people might be just as nervous. They're just faking it. You know, I'm not an expert, but like if, um, if I were coaching people on stress management, I would advise someone who lacks confidence or gets really nervous before being on a podcast or public speaking or doing a sales presentation. My advice would be to fake it. Like just pretend that you're someone who is confident. It can be fun to pretend <laughs> or just, you know, act like you're somebody that you're not. Um, every little girl wants to be an actress right? <laughs> or everybody wants to be in Hollywood someday. Uh, so if you repeat that behavior enough, the next thing you know, you become that confident person. How does your coaching contribute yeah, I mean, to confidence? My approach, uh, first of all, would be I'm not going to help you to become confident. You see, confidence is a solution, right? Isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a solution to uncertainty. Uh, if I want to become confident, right? All I need to do is to eliminate uncertainty, or in another way of saying it is, create certainty. Mm. For instance, if I believe that I'm a confident person, right? Oh no, let's say if I believe that the Lord spoke spoke to me and told me to do this, now I'm, I'm suddenly confident because I've gotten a certain sense of certainty. Let's say that everybody in the country sends a message to me saying, uh, Christian, we all believe in you and we want you to, I don't know, run for president. Now I'm confident in running for president because, again, a bunch of people have given me certainty. Mm -hmm. right? So really, confidence is an answer to uncertainty. It's uh, Someone is uncertain, they don't know what to do with uncertainty, and then they're saying the solution is confidence. So let's develop confidence. Mm. Now, this is not the approach I use because this is like, I, I call this the dumb approach. The dumb approach is rushing to solutions before looking at the problem. So someone is uncertain. Instead of trying to look at this uncertainty, understand it, how is it being generated? The person is just rushing to confidence. I'm uncertain, I have to be confident. Let me figure out how to be confident. I'm not saying that confidence is not the answer. But what I'm saying is, if I look at my own uncertainty, my own fear, the thoughts, the fearful thoughts, that observation in itself, the problem in the problem is contained the solution. The solution may be to fake it till I make it. Right? It may not be that. For instance, in my own case, I have not found it necessary to cultivate confidence. Observing my own fear made me realize that, look, this fear is, there's a bunch of thoughts running through my head, projecting an uncertain future. And I can just allow those thoughts to run. I noticed that even if I let the fearful, the, 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 the so-called scary scenario run through my mind, I can handle it. That's all. I just, that's it. I didn't need to go and now cultivate confidence. And so this is, uh, this is the, a bit of the difference here. It's no need to worry about the solution. The solution is a byproduct of the problem. If you look at the problem, understand how the problem works, the problem tells you what you need to do. Mm. So this is, this is part, of, uh, part of the observe approach. The only thing I would disagree with you there is I think that confidence comes from preparation. And even though life is one damn uncertainty after another, you can increase the likelihood of a certain outcome by preparing more. Oh, of course, of course, right? Uh, I mean, you can, 
when it comes to getting achieving a goal of course right you could increase the likelihood of achieving the goal by practicing by preparing by planning by taking certain actions of course you can do that what i'm saying is if you're interested in cultivating confidence sure that's not an issue it's very easy to cultivate confidence we just have to get a certain kind of certainty so one way to make there's so many ways to make you certain man like it doesn't even have to be realistic it could be just like god has, has taken a shine onto you or you are destined for something great you could just feed that thought and that will give you confidence another way if you if we're interested in developing confidence is um just uh, like accumulate a couple of successes this will increase your confidence or your certainty that you can achieve more successes in the future um what what i'm just saying is that beforehand it's let's not predetermine that we need to create confidence because there are certain uh, there, there's nothing wrong with it right there's nothing wrong with the with the confidence state uh it it enables us uh, it enables many people to do things that they would not be able to do otherwise it does have its value the confidence state also comes with other uh, other consequences and it's up to someone to decide whether they want these consequences or not for instance when you're confident and certain right when you're certain that you know how something is that in itself stops you from seeing the reality of things if i believe if i believe that i can do this any thought any piece of evidence that tells me that i cannot do this i'm going to resist that so once i start resisting things i'm no longer looking at things as they are so this is the limitation does this mean someone shouldn't be confident no not necessarily but right? if you're okay with that that's fine right so for me for instance i like to see things as they are so any belief any any sort of uh any sort of certainty right stops me from seeing things as they are so for me that's part of the problem and naturally i'm going to watch that also because i want to see things as they are but if obviously someone is not so interested in this you just want to achieve your goal then of course right confidence is the way to go he, but it's not necessary to cultivate certainty in order to achieve a goal i like that i wrote an article about emotional intelligence recently and i had retrieved the definition from google and it said that emotional intelligence was just the capacity to be aware of control and express emotions and to handle interpersonal relationships judiciously and empathetically and the first part of the definition i mm. think applies to what we're talking about because once you become aware of an emotion it can be felt and it can be observed and if you have high emotional intelligence i, I think you can control your emotions better um people who are low in emotional intelligence generally lack the self-awareness needed to apply some of of what we're talking about i think they either aren't aware of the emotions as they occur or the accompanying sensations so for example we know that anger is usually felt as heat in the body and even the awareness to recognize the feeling with an emotion is a major step for someone who's new to all of this because then you can start to di differentiate between thought and feeling which i'm sure is something that you are really effective at is it, am I correct in saying that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't have perfect understanding, but 
yeah, way better than I used to be at it. Yeah, and understanding those, the connection between thoughts and emotion. Yeah, and so you're probably very well adapted to understanding the effect that your emotions have on other people, which those lacking in self awareness don't have that ability. So I, I really think that your coaching could help people in this regard to help them observe their emotions and separate thought from feeling. Through my own anecdotal evidence, people low in emotional intelligence believe that those who are capable of controlling their emotions don't have emotions because low EQ people or emotional intelligence people can't imagine being able to control their own emotions. And rather than put the work in to develop themselves and work on their internal state, which is what you do by sitting for two to four hours a day, most people aren't willing to put in that kind of time. And of course, they think that they don't have, they don't have that kind of time, but really that is what's most needed. And they'd be much better off investing two hours a day in sharpening the saw, so to speak, than I mean, how, many, how much time do you spend looking at social media, which is increasing your anxiety versus sitting alone and observing your thoughts and trying to distinguish between what you think and what you feel. Um, so anyway, I, that's just something that I thought was, was worth putting out there. Do you have thoughts on that? It's hard to convince someone. Like, I mean, I didn't start off doing two to four hours a day. And I never started off that way because I also didn't think it was very valuable. I was like, look, what, just sit down and, and do what? <laughs> meditate <laughs> sit down and observe it just seemed very dumb very foolish and a waste of time so when i started it was just very scary for me actually because again i was raised in a i was raised in a in, in, in africa and uh, in congo at least uh, we have a lot of stories about witchcraft your soul being taken there's a lot of nigerian movies that talk about that kind of thing like, I don't know, man, like a, like a demon appears from nowhere and takes your soul or occupies your body, things like that. I, was, I, I grew up with that kind of stuff. And usually those were the fears that were pointed to you. And the solution was believe in Jesus. So mm-hmm. if you believe in Jesus, you're safe from all those things. The moment you stop believing in Jesus, the devil may come to get you. This is how I was raised. Uh, I grew up with these ideas. So the first time I closed my eyes to meditate, I basically ran out of the room. Mm. Too much fear. Like, think about it. Maybe like some spirit is going to come in now and take me over, which was weird because I was in college at the time, right? You think after learning all this math, you must be rational. No, the fear took over. I just run. But of course, over time, uh, I began to do these observation sessions, uh, not because someone told me I have to do them. That never worked. But just because I began to see the impact they have on me, the, the, the power, just, just the results made me keep going. Mm-hmm. And now, like, I really can't complete a day. The day will feel wrong if I don't sit down and observe. It's not, I'm not forcing myself to do it. It's just from the pure results point of view, this, this, this approach of observing my thoughts and emotions has just been so powerful. Now I'll do it for hours. For instance, after this conversation with you, right, after any podcast interview I do, I sit down with my eyes closed because I notice that if I don't, everything we've talked here, all the emotions that came up, 
during this conversation will rule the rest of the day. So even now, I'll just, after this, yeah, I'll sit down, uh, no, no even clock. So I may sit down for two hours after this to make sure that I've recovered <laughs> from the conversation. Before it, I used to do it for emotional pain, but now I do it for any sort of intense emotion, excitement, all of it. Like, for example, speaking to you takes tremendous emotion, a tremendous emotion and energy. So I'm going to have to diffuse that <laughs> at the end of uh, this session. Why is that? Why does it take such emotion and energy to talk to me? Uh, it's not specifically you. It's just, this is something I enjoy tremendously, mm. talking about human suffering and talking to people. But I, I mean, I, I, I involve myself totally in this, right? So as you can tell, I'm, I'm talking to you totally, completely involved in, in this conversation. And that, that tremendous energy takes on a momentum. Mm. Right? So once I live here, what you said will be running through my mind. The things you agreed with will be running through my mind. The things you didn't agree with will run through my mind. And then I'll be thinking about, well, what could I have said better to so all of this stuff? So, of course, whenever I'm in such a state, I'm not able to, uh, this is like I consider it a state of low intelligence. Because when my mind is hijacked by such thoughts and emotions, I can't think clearly anymore or do anything well. So that's why I sit and just wait it out. Um, and, 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 and that works for me. After a while, uh, sanity returns into my head and I'm able to continue. That's brilliant. I think more people should do that, sit and allow their thoughts to consolidate after they have a big presentation or give a talk or they're a guest on a podcast. I think that too many people nowadays go from checking email to social media to listening to a podcast and they never stop to think and it doesn't allow their brain processes to occur in the way that they used to be able to back when people value sol valued solitude more or they were able to allow themselves to be bored. Not that you allowed yourself to be bored, but people aren't capable of being bored anymore. And what it's done, I think, is fostered this sense of, of people are scared to sit with their thoughts, right? They're just uh, afraid of their mind. The past will creep up and they, they, they can't control their thoughts or their emotions or anything. Let me, let me ask you this. If I forced you to condense your program into three steps, how would you do that? It's actually this, I call it the observe approach. <laughs> and I don't know how you got it, but yes, it, it's a three-step process. <laughs> I don't know if you just found the right number accidentally. I, I'm not sure. All right. So anyways, step one, observe. Step two, record facts. Step three, act. Right? So this applies to Let's say you have a problem in, I mean, just let's make this practical. Uh, just pick any problem that you're comfortable sharing that let's say you're having right now in your life. I still get headaches that affect um, how, how I treat my wife sometimes. Like I will sometimes act in a way that she says, does your head hurt? <laughs> mm, okay. So you, you have headaches and then... Uh, these headaches make you uh, act in a way that uh, you don't treat your wife well under those conditions. I wouldn't say that I don't treat her well. I just maybe have a shorter fuse when I have a headache. The first thing is would, uh, before figuring out what should be done, like how should you act, what should you do, right? we're not going to read any books on the topic. We're just going to look at the reality of your situation. Mm -hmm. so the first thing we'll do is just 
we'll observe and then we'll record the facts. So the fact is going to be what you have observed. So for instance, it, it may be, I don't know your situation well enough, right? But we're just demonstrating this for the audience. It may be that your headaches happen on Tuesdays or they happen on days when you are under a lot of pressure, right? So we record that. On days when I'm under a lot of pressure, I tend to get these headaches. Okay. And then maybe we might observe and notice when my wife says this, I'm, I'm very usually unable to control my emotions uh, when I'm having these headaches. Or you might even observe and record another fact. When I don't have, I'm better able to interact with my wife. So I don't have the process of sense. You just record the facts. So not your interpretations. It can't be something like, these headaches will go on forever. Or my wife should be more understanding about this. Right? These are not facts. These are your interpretations, your conclusions, mm-hmm. or your own complaining. So we deal with the facts. Does that make sense? Yes. What I have noticed is that when we record enough of these facts, how to act becomes like what you need to do. Every fact you record gives you more options of what you can do. For instance, just as an example, I'm not saying this is your reality, but let's say you notice that your headaches tend to happen on days when you're under a lot of pressure. Information tells you something you can do. For instance, maybe it could be to tell your wife that, look, I'll have a lot of work on Monday and Tuesday. I'll be under a lot of pressure. So just know that I might have a shorter fuse then. Right? This option has just come to you because, you because you've observed one fact. Now, the more facts you observe, the better solution you come up with because you're more in touch with the reality of the situation. Right? And it's, it's a bit of an art form knowing when to stop in fact recording. But usually what I've realized is that the problem itself contains the solution to it. If you're able to look at it and record the facts, and the facts will tell you what action needs to be taken. So that's my simple practical process that uh, the listeners can follow. Or can, I don't really like people to follow me, but maybe try it out and see if it works for you or not. Yeah, I like that. It's, it's very much like journaling. I mean, I guess you could be taking notes in a journal or wherever, but I like the idea of a journal because it keeps you going back to the same place. And then you can see over time how it is that you handle different situations and writing them down detaches yourself and allows for more objectivity. Is that, is that along the lines of what you're thinking? Yeah, writing them down de- detaches you from objectivity. That's correct. Yeah, it's similar to journaling, but it's different from journaling because in journaling you write down your feelings, mm. and your feelings are your interpretations. I wasn't treated well, or she should have been more understanding. These are things you might write down in your journal. Mm-hmm. But when when we here we're talking about recording facts, so just what happened, what did you observe, not what you think it means. Just write down the facts of it, right? She wasn't, uh, she, she, let's say she got upset by what I said. That's it. That's the fact. And not that she never understands me, right? This is something you might write in a journal. Mm-hmm. So we're only, you know, we're focusing on the facts, not your interpretations. Just write down the facts and the facts will tell you what to do. The facts are the reality. The interpretations are your own thoughts, your own ideas of what's happening. It's not necessarily what is actually happening. 
So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a strange uh, way, but this is something, this is one of the things I learned was that when you have a problem that is stressing you out, it's not really necessary to worry about the solution. The solution is a natural byproduct of looking and observing, recording the facts of your reality. The world operates by cause and effect. We are in charge of the actions. We're not in charge of the effects. The effects happen on their own. Uh, if I want to grow a corn plant, I need to set the ground, weed, uh, put in the seed and water it. The actual growing of the plant, the consequence is not in my control. This is the same with uh, dealing with any stressful situation. The solution to the situation, you don't really control that. That's a consequence. We, we need to focus on what are the actions you take? What do you do in order for the solution to come? And what you do is observe and look at the reality of the situation. The facts themselves uh, are enough. Once you record them, the consequence takes care of itself. And this sounds might sound woo-woo, kind of foolish. Um, of course, if you uh, apply it, then you might be able to judge better whether it works or not. Yeah, I like what you said about not focusing on the solution. It reminds me of baseball. So I played baseball for a lot of years. And if you focus mm. on hitting the ball over the fence or hitting a line drive over the shortstop or wherever, you're not going to be as successful if you just focus on what's in front of you because everything that matters is just over the home plate, right? Where the ball is when you connect with it with your bat. Everything else takes mm. care of itself. So it's kind of like yep. on the process. Mm. I like that. That's right. Yep. That's interesting. What did you make of Black Americans wanting to be called African American? Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't really have any qualms with that. Um, I, I mean, I'd heard it, it. It was an issue for many people around me, but for me, it didn't. Uh, it, it didn't matter so much. Um, mm. But 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 I felt at ease with. Um, I felt at ease with Black Americans, although we had different culture. I felt at ease with them. Um, I don't know. Just I, I felt, in a sense, connected to that. Probably just because they were they were black also. Mm. It is uh, like uh, we also have uh, the history is not precisely the same. But we have a similar history of um, a certain, I mean, if you look at the, the, the African continent, uh, at least the parts I've been in, there's a huge inferiority complex, right? The feeling that, no, look, uh, man, I'm, I'm a black person, man. I have limits. I, I can't be a leader. Uh, I, can't, I can't run a successful business. I'm not the kind of person that, uh, that makes things happen. I don't develop this inferiority complex. Uh, so my own thinking is this comes from the colonial history, mm. right? A long time of being subjugated. But think about it. If I want to colonize Brad, I mean, <laughs> what am I going to do? First thing is I want to make you feel worthless. So mm. make you feel like you can't take initiative, you can't lead, you can't solve problems, you're inferior to me, there's something wrong with your white skin. Right? That's like, if I were to colonize you, that's what I would do. Mm. Right? So, But this one's like the, the, the reverse of it. So this is a, like a history we have as, let's say, black people in Africa. And the Americans also, from what I hear, have a similar history, right, from uh, slavery and uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. So th that, that was one level on which we connected. Uh, that was the level of having a certain 
common like kind of inferiority complex yeah but obviously i never wanted to dwell in that or feel like feel like a victim mm-hmm. right um and, and one of my one of my best friends i made when i was in the u.s uh, also african-american the exact uh, the exact opposite this one was a friend who was like uh, he held his head up uh very confident takes initiative uh, very insightful this one this is one of my this is one of my best friends and one of the people that helped me to rise above a lot of these things. So you mentioned the cultures being different. What was your opinion of black culture in America? Well, I mean, there's obviously stuff about it that's very cool. So some of my, my favorite comedians are, or actually, all of my favorite comedians are, okay, most of them are black American. I like George Carlin. Mm. George Carlin is also my favorite. <laughs> I, I love that. I love his comedy. I mean, other than him, the, the, my favorite comedians are Black Americans, African Americans. Uh, so, Chris Rock, for instance, uh, uh, what Dave Chappelle. Mm. Those are people I really, really connected to. Just uh, made me laugh. So, those were aspects of the culture that uh, that, that I really liked. There's also a certain charisma that uh, I noticed. Okay, not all African Americans, not all Black people, but there's a certain charisma that uh, that that black people have, and the African Americans have their own uh, their own version of it. So, like, it's hard to put into words, but there's a certain energy. Not with everybody, but I, I connected to that. Also, obviously, I connected to the history of uh, the, the the inferiority complex, feeling like a victim. However, I obviously don't like to be uh, a victim, and so that's the part I didn't really like. It wasn't with everybody. But I had some uh, black friends and uh, white friends who joined them also, just uh, in feeling kind of like victims, right? This this uh, this slavery stuff was done to us. Um, the society is against us. Everyone is conspiring against us. There's no way we can make it. The police force, right? So I I don't or the jails are designed for us. I mean I I I don't know about all that stuff, but obviously I don't want to be feeling like a victim, right? I was more interested in given the situation i'm in how can i uh, at, let's say achieve my goals so this was the idea i i had i had when i was there right and so that was the one part about the culture this was black culture this was also latinos i also identified very easily with latinos because their behavior just reminded me of again someone from a colonial past so we connected on that level i just didn't like the victim mindset mm-hmm. so this is this is one part where i diverged Right. I also didn't want to get uh, sucked. Well, I didn't want to get sucked into now. Let's say having a hate towards people of white skin. Right. So I didn't want to do that because, again, uh, I, I recognize the contribution. Right. There's a lot of stuff I know. A lot of people who've helped me and they had white skin. So I can't. Uh, I can't suddenly hate them. Right. Over some over some past in slavery. Uh, that's tough for me to do. Mm-hmm. So I just uh, basically what I what I had to learn was to see people as people, without of course rejecting the realities, but see people as as people. Um, there's there's good black people, there's bad black people. I mean, let's just look use the normal common notions of good and bad. Okay, let's say friendly and unfriendly. There's friendly black people, there's unfriendly black people. There's friendly white people, there's unfriendly white people. And I discovered thanks to studying in the U.S. when I interacted with so many racial groups that you can find let's say kind gentle people everywhere 
and you can find mean people everywhere also. Yeah, is that true? I, I'm in an interracial relationship or marriage. Uh, my wife mm -hmm. is not white. And one of the first things that I asked her was whether or not she had ever experienced racism. And she said, mm. well, I, don't, I would just assume that they're mean. I wouldn't assume that they're racist. And it got me thinking about whether or not people are more luxist rather than racist. Because my, my wife's a beautiful woman. People are rarely racist toward people who they think are beautiful. And I just thought it was an interesting perspective that I had never considered. Now, let me ask you some fun, quick questions, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap up. So how many brothers and sisters do you have? I have one big brother and then lots of relatives. I'm told that I have hundreds of cousins. Apparently, and my grandfather on my mother's side was polygamous. If someone dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? The first thing I would do is go to the U.S. Embassy, uh, get my visa, and then fly off to the U.S. to attend an inner engineering program. Mm. So that would be the first thing I'll do before. I'll, that whole thing would cost me around maybe, I don't know, like it wouldn't cost me a million, but like maybe 5000 That's the first thing I'd do. Mm. Yeah. Good answer. Do you have a favorite book related to dealing with stress or emotions? Uh, it's a book called Principles by Ray Dalio. Oh, yeah. I've read that. I'm a yeah. fan, too. I, I, I like that book. Uh, I mean, Ray Dalio has been able to go very far uh, with, with like just logic and pure rationality. Right. So I, the, book is a, the book is a masterpiece. Besides Man Overseas, what is your favorite podcast? <laughs> Tom Bilyeu's uh, Impact Theory. Mm. Uh, that's one I, I, use, I used to like, listen to a lot, mm. especially when I was in college. I mean, but now, obviously, I don't listen a lot to podcasts anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm more like internal, uh, mm. just trying to find answers from my own observations. Okay. Two more questions. What are you most grateful for? The capacity to choose the rate of my own evolution as a human being. I can decide to take easy lessons and progress slowly. I have the option of taking tough lessons and progress faster. And, and this is one of the aspects I, I, I really like about uh, just being human. One of the things I'm grateful for is the amount of, uh, amount of uh, control agency that I have, I have within that, uh, that look, I, I can choose which direction I go into um, and that I'm actually right now. The dysfunction is that I don't really know how to handle my inner state. But what I like is that my inner state is in my hands. So this is something I'm grateful for. How can people find out more about you? If you just want to ask me a question, you want me to answer your question, then just go to observe.host and click on contact. Uh, Brad will have the links to those. Um, the other thing is, if let's say you like the ideas I'm sharing, you want to learn more about the observe approach, then in that case, just go to observe.host and click on uh, the observe approach. This will give you free and instant access to a simple but very powerful method that you can apply immediately to deal with any problem that is stressing you out. And then just the final way is if you're at a low point right now and you feel that your life sucks, 
then for a limited time only, I am offering a free My Life Sucks coaching session. <laughs> I love that, Dave. <laughs> this free coaching session, you'll get a crystal clear vision of the life you want. You'll figure out precisely what is making your life suck and will leave the session renewed, re-energized and confident in your ability to transform your life. So to take advantage of this uh, limited time on the offer, just go to observe.host and click on uh, free coaching. Brad will be able to add the links to all of these uh, free resources in the show notes. I sure will. Thank you for coming on the podcast today, Christian. This was enjoyable and I'm certain that a lot of what you said will be helpful to my listeners. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, th thanks a lot, Brad. This is, yep, this has been fun. Friends, thank you for tuning in. I never take it lightly that you've chosen to spend your time listening to the podcast. It really means a lot. If you're listening to this episode on Apple Podcast, would you please take a few seconds and give us a rating or review? Every rating helps people to find the podcast a little easier, and hopefully they'll find an episode or two that helps them to improve their lot in life, even if it's just in some small way. So until next time, thank you, friends. Thank you.